Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today we're starting a quick series of podcasts about the mass violence in Indonesia starting in 1965. In the near future, I'll talk with Kate McGregor and Annie Pullman about their edited volume about the period, and with Jess Melvin about her book about the Indonesian army and the violence. But today, we'll start the series by talking with Jeffrey Robinson, professor of history at UCLA, about his new book, The Killing Season, A History of the Indonesian Massacres, 1965-1966. to Jeff, welcome, and thanks for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Jeff, maybe we can start by um, giving you a chance to say something about how you became interested in history and interested in the history of Indonesia um, and how how you ended up studying it from an academic perspective. You know, it's, a, it's an odd uh, story. I actually, I have to confess, I, uh, I began as a political scientist. I call myself a recovering political scientist. <laughs> um, and uh, <clears throat> what I realized as I went through my various degrees in politics and political science is that what I really loved about political science was contemporary and modern uh, history. Hmm. Uh, and in fact, on my dissertation in my PhD exam, one of my examiners approached me 10 minutes before the exam and said, you know, what you've written is not really political science. It's history. <laughs> so that was a cue to me that I should perhaps change direction and go into the, into history. But, but oddly, uh, my, my academic, um, path was interrupted because right after getting my, my PhD, I, I landed a job not in academia, but in uh, human rights work, uh, working in the head office of Amnesty International in London. And uh, that really shaped a lot of uh, my thinking about these kinds of issues and made me uh, much more aware of dimensions of political violence and and genocide and human rights uh, than I uh, even I had been before. Um, So it was that strange combination of being interested in political history um, the experience of working for five or six years in human rights um, and uh, possibly, you know, something to do with being Canadian uh, got in there as well that, that made me interested in these subjects. The, I mean, the, the ind- particular interest in Indonesia came quite by chance after I, uh, I graduated with my BA from McGill. And I, like a lot of people at that time, I wasn't ready to do anything in particular. So I traveled. And uh, I, I decided to travel to a part of the world that I didn't know anything about, and that part was Southeast Asia. Um, I, I envisioned a, a trip of a month or two, and I ended up staying for two years because wow. I found it uh, utterly fascinating. And, uh, of course, I was romanticizing it a little bit. I didn't really know anything about the history. Um, but I, I decided I while I was there, I decided I'd like to find an excuse to come back. And the best excuse I could think of was to study it. Um, so that really was how I ended up uh, uh, coming to this. And um, 
and it turned out that the place that I went to study it was Cornell University, where some of the you know the great um, professors of Southeast Asia, ben, uh, Benedict Anderson, George Cahan, they were there, and they really guided me um, to think about these these more um, these difficult questions in Indonesian history um, more than I think um, some other people might have done. So that's really the story of how I got here. So I have to ask, so, so I'm intrigued by this, this background in political science. Too. How, did that, how does that still, does that still shape how you think about writing about the, the recent past? Or, or has it, have you kind of not simply re, been recovering, but are you now recovered? <laughs> I, I'm not entirely sure. I find when I'm, uh, when I'm teaching about this and when I think about it, there are little bits of my political science training a very old-fashioned political science training, mm. uh, w- which still creep in. I am certainly not someone who uh, who embraces or knows anything about, frankly, quantitative methods or statistical methods that are or rational choice theory or things like that that are quite popular in political science these days. Um, I would say, you know, I what what is there as a residuum from political science is a sense that one should think comparatively. One should try to think in a kind of systematic way about why things are the way they are. Uh, and, and I think especially this idea that uh, you can you can kind of you have a responsibility to, to decipher what's happening, but also but especially figuring out why things vary in the way they do. Mm. So the variation over time and variation from place to place is a big deal in at least as far as I'm concerned, but thinking comparatively to help to understand a place by comparing it to other places um, is something that I think is still kind of um, influences the way I do history. So you've written about political violence uh, and you wrote about in particular violence in East Timor. Why, why this book now about the Indonesian massacres? Well, um, Actually, the, the, my interest in the, in the massacres, the events of 65, 66 in Indonesia dates back, you know, at least 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of afraid to, to admit that, but um, I, I, I became interested in this when I was a graduate student at Cornell. Uh, and, um, really again, it was Ben Anderson and George Cahan who directed me to this. I was studying with them and in fact, it became a part of my dissertation, which was on political violence in Bali, Mm -hmm. um, uh, which included the book really began and ended with the question of why had this, these terrible Mm -hmm. things happened on this supposedly, uh, this Island, which people think of as being such a paradise. Um, and so I began with that very kind of micro historical study of Bali. Uh, but I always had in mind, in the back of my mind, that re- it would really be helpful to have a much wider picture, to be able to look at the entire story, both the, across the Indonesian archipelago, but also to place Indonesia into a wider kind of world or regional context um, and that had been pressing on me over the past 30 years. I've been gathering, going to archives uh, whenever I could and doing interviews whenever I could. But one thing got, you know, uh, over, over, you know, 30 years or so, other things kept on getting in the way. And I finally uh, managed uh, four or five years ago to put my um, 
my shoulder to the to the uh, whatever one puts one's shoulder to. But anyway, I, I, be, <laughs> I, I, mo- <laughs> I moved back into this uh, with a vengeance um, and, uh, and and got on with it. I, I think it's so. So the simple answer is I've been thinking about it for an awfully long mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I really, really just want I felt that after all these years of thinking about other places, particularly Timor, but also thinking about Cambodia and thinking about genocides broadly, which is something I've been thinking about more and more over the years, it was, I felt finally equipped to take on this rather daunting task of trying to understand the, the Indonesian violence in its entirety. That's a, that's a really personal story. Uh, I, 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 I'm thinking about this little series that I've got going, which I couldn't have done five years ago, um, at least as a genocide scholar who who looks at Indonesia as a case study rather than an Indonesian scholar who looks outward, I don't know that I would have, I don't know that there would have been the resources, the new books that I would have allowed me to pick up this kind of series until relatively recently. So, so is that right? Is this, are you in, in this personal way contributing to a kind of new awareness of what happened in Indonesia or or have I just not been paying attention to Amazon? Yeah, no, I I actually think this really you've you've asked an important question because one of the motivations for writing this book has been that a sense of frustration over all these years that mm. although among a small group of Indonesia scholars there has been discussion about this for many years. I mean, there are an awful lot of. Uh, articles and so on that have been circulating among a group of 15 or or 20 Indonesianists. Um, What was striking to me and kind of frankly very frustrating and puzzling to me uh, was that 50 years after these events took place, in which half a million people were killed minimally and a million others were detained without charge or trial, that there still uh, that it was still so uh, unknown. It was an it was uh, a, a kind of an instance of mass violence was that about which very little had been written that had entered the the discussion among genocide scholars or scholars of political violence. It certainly hadn't reached the level of uh, popular awareness, and it, to me, it really uh, kind of called out for uh, uh, fuller treatment. Um, it was just if one thinks about it, uh, you know, comparatively, the other kinds of genocides that we know, I mean, certainly the Holocaust, but also the Cambodian genocide, the Rwandan genocide, these are genocides which are broadly known and frequently invoked in comparative studies. There are any number of books on both and on all of these. And Indonesia, uh, although well known among a group of Indonesian scholars, it seemed to me, was not at all and still is not well known among genocide mm-hmm. scholars or, or more broadly. So p- part of this is just one of those things that academics do, which is to say, I wanted to uh, address that that uh, empty space. I wanted to fill that empty space. But I also, in the book, I'm trying to answer the question, why has there been such silence? Yeah. Why has there been so little awareness and and so that's really you know one of the one of the purposes of the book is to address that. Well, let, let's turn to the book, and I'd like to ask you first to talk a little bit about. I guess you could talk about the title, but I'm particularly interested in the subtitle. The subtitle: History of the Indonesian Massacres. Um, 
Why that rather than a history of the Indonesian genocide or whatever it might be? Yeah, it, it's a fair question and it has no simple answer. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, and I, I will say that I'm not I, I look at that title <laughs> uh, quite a lot and think I wonder if that's the right title. Uh, but here <laughs> here. Here was the thinking. Here's the thinking behind it. I mean, I'll be very honest about this: that the, my publisher said, "Why not call it the Indonesian Genocide: A History?" Mm. Uh, and and one could make a case for that. Um, I know that other, you know, my colleague uh, Jess Melvin has made an argument that this was indeed a genocide, and and another well-known scholar, Robert Cribb, has has made a similar argument. Uh, but it's by no means uh, un. Uh, uh, an open and shut case. And I suppose naively, I thought that um, uh, I did not want the book to become a kind of polemic, uh, a definitional uh, study. I didn't want to focus my energies or the energies of reviewers on the question, is it or isn't it? Um, because it struck me that you know, having looked into the, spent some time uh, reading in genocide studies, that that wasn't necessarily the crucial question. Um, and that we can, I think genocide scholars often find themselves uh, getting involved in uh, definitional debates that may not actually elucidate important historical or analytical questions. And, and I wanted to focus the question on, well, what happened here? Why did it happen? Uh, what were the dynamics? What were the legacies and consequences? And why has there been such silence and inaction? And I didn't see how, uh, I, I didn't want then the discussion to become, uh, well, Robinson calls it a genocide, but perhaps <laughs> he's wrong. And how does he know it's a genocide? And so my publisher said, well, can't you just throw something in about genocide and you know, I'm maybe giving away. And I said, you know, I've written the whole book kind of scrupulously avoiding that question. Maybe, you know, maybe that was, um, you know, a, a mistake, but I can't, in all honesty, um, you know, be, being intellectually honest, I can't suddenly at the very end say, uh, because I want to call it a book about genocide, suddenly introduce an argument about its being a genocide, even though I, I, at the same time, I'm, I don't want to get into a polemic with the people who, who, who decided to call it one because I, mm. I completely understand the argument and I'm not opposed to it. It's something that, uh, um, you know, I just didn't want that to be the central uh, uh, kind of uh, the central point. I didn't want the book to be an argument about the fact that this was a genocide. Mm. I guess I don't know if I'm making myself clear. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I think as academics, yeah. we often underrate the, uh, the influence of editors in terms of how yeah. our work is perceived. I'm working now on something with Norton, and, and the editor with whom I started to work on this manuscript wanted me to change the title for kind of similar reasons. And then he left to go somewhere else in the company, and the next guy said, well, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> and um, that's yeah. not a particularly academic way to frame an argument, but I'm happy about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think we ignore that. Uh, but many of yeah. you're, you're right. The silence that you talk about means that many of my, many of the listeners here probably don't know a whole lot about what you wrote about. So, so maybe we'll start by just kind of getting some some common sense of what happened. So, so what happened yeah. on October first of nineteen sixty five? 
Well, essentially, the, the, the story is can be told fairly simply, which is that October 1st, 1965, um, six generals, Indonesian generals, were kidnapped and killed. And uh, shortly thereafter, the remaining military command said, claimed that those generals had been killed, kidnapped and killed in a conspiracy by the uh, Communist Party of Indonesia, the PKI. Uh, and on the basis of that unproven allegation, began a campaign of violence against the PKI, which was a legal, popular political party, and against the left nationalist president at the time, who was not a communist, but who was sympathetic to the PKI. And in the course of the next six months, so from October 1965 until about March 1966, in that campaign against the left, something like half a million communists or alleged communists uh, were killed. Um, another million or so leftists were incarcerated, some of them for more than 30 years, few of them with any trial. Um, and so you had this uh, uh, a, a massive um, uh, uh, campaign which led not only to killing but to incarceration. And, and it's there's one thing that I find very important to emphasize in this, which is that this was not a civil war. We're not talking about two sides fighting. Um, the Communist Party was, at the time, completely legal. It was actually quite popular. It had 3.5 million members. It was the largest non-governing Communist Party in the world. It had probably 20 million of, uh, members of affiliated organizations. So women's groups, youth groups, farmers groups, writers groups, and so on. And these also were targeted. Uh, so the people who were being killed uh, were not combatants. They were not people who had done anything. They hadn't committed a crime. They were farmers, day laborers, civil servants, teachers, dancers, and so on. Um, and they were killed in pretty gruesome ways. They were many of them decapitated, they were castrated, their, uh, their heads or their dismembered bodies were left in public places. Um, and so, you know, I describe it in the, in the book as one of the largest and swiftest instances of mass killing and incarceration in the 20th century. And uh, I think that is still true. Um, and, but it's, I think it's re really important to, to take note of the fact that it was um, a, uh, a campaign that was um, based on and that, and that was rooted on and justified by a, an unproven allegation that some members of that party had kidnapped and killed six generals. Um, and so the people who were killed were could in no way have been implicated uh, in uh, any crime, even if that allegation had been proven true, which now for more than 50 years later, it hasn't been proven. And so um, making it all the more egregious, I think. Yeah, so that's so since, since the um, since the army and, and, and various perpetrators are going to use this as the. Um, explanation or the excuse for the violence that will come maybe maybe you can say a little bit more about what we 
what do we know about who planned it and why it happened, the, this kidnapping of the general? Ah, well, um, it, of course, the, one of the problems has been, and one of the preoccupations of Indonesian scholars has been who done it. I mean, yeah. who, uh, who, who did kidnap the, the generals? Um, I think the best, there, there are you know, five or six different explanations, um, and which I'm not going to rehearse. Uh, <laughs> you can look find them in the book. But yep. um, the, uh, the, the least plausible of the six is the official version, which has been mm. taught in schools um, for 50 years, which is that it was the PKI, it was the Communist Party that did it. Uh, the more plausible explanation is the one that was... Um, uh, it was already suggested by the by the coup or the the, the people who com who carried out these actions in the first place, which is that it was a group of disgruntled, somewhat um, uh, so disgruntled middle ranking army officers who did not like the direction that these uh, that their commanders, the the high ranking generals, were taking the country. They felt that the generals were moving too swiftly to the to the right that they were in that they were perhaps conspiring with the CIA to stage their own right-wing coup and that what they were doing was trying to preempt a CIA-backed coup um, now could the left and the PKI in any sense have been involved in that cabal with these um, middle ranking officers? Sure. They, it, there is one argument that perhaps the, uh, the chairman uh, on his own without consulting with his standing committee or the central committee uh, may have had an intermediary who was going to the, who is communicating with those uh, middle ranking army officers and saying, you know, we're with you. But that uh, is still um, uh, highly speculative. And um, uh, even if it were true that this fellow I did had somehow given a green light or said, you know, we're, we're in favor of this, it, uh, it is a far cry from the claim that the party as a whole and all its members and all its affiliated members were responsible for an act of treachery. So I, you know, the, the jury is still out, um, except to say that the official version is the least plausible and, um, mm. and has the least evidence to support it. The only evidence, in fact, that has been adduced to support the official version, which was that the PKI organized it and carried it out and, and was seeking to, to seize power, uh, is evidence that was extracted under torture uh, from the people who were detained right afterwards, um, and one and a, and one case of a, a supposed confession, which could never be corroborated because the person who confessed was shot immediately after they they allegedly signed it. So um, it, there's reason for real skepticism uh, about the official version, and, and it's a point that I try to highlight um, in the book. But I, I guess the other thing that is worth mentioning is that. You know, even if it were true, just let's suppose, in all honesty, let's just suppose that the head of the of the um, Communist Party did give his stamp of approval to the kidnapping and killing of six generals. The question is, was it did, would that in any way have warranted or justified or rendered less uh, outrageous the killing of half a million people? who had nothing to do with it. 
And I think the answer is obviously no. Uh, but it was, but but this this story about the PKI's involvement was one which was very deliberately generated and um, disseminated and propagated through an army-controlled press um, in order to incite people and to encourage people to um, to take uh, very violent actions against all members of the left. Yeah, so that's an interesting. Excuse me. You 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 say quite re- quite rightly, I think, that, that that even if that were true, it would not justify the kind of mass violence. But but clearly, some people in Indonesia did think that it justified that kind of mass violence. So so what is it? What's going on in Indonesian society in the years before 1965 that creates this kind of vulnerability to this kind of I don't know, this kind of unusual event. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's very important. There are, there's an awful lot that you could say. Um, one, uh, one very important part of this is that in the years uh, from independence uh, in 1949 through until 1965, so the roughly 15 year period of early independence, Indonesia is a country which has actually an extremely lively political life. Um, you know, it is, uh, there are many, many different political parties. This is not a one party state by any mm-hmm. means. Um, there was a lively political tradition. There were national elections in 1955 and so on. Um, but over time, uh, by the ni- late 1950s, particularly because of the Cold War context, I would say, um, p- politics in Indonesia was growing increasingly polarized between uh, the, the left, a left which was dominated by the Communist Party, uh, and the right, which was dominated by um, the army, which was very much involved in politics, but also th- their allies on the right, a, a very conservative branch of a nationalist party, and a number of uh, Muslim parties, Indonesia being about 85% Muslim. Um, and this split, this polarization between the left and the right, with the army being largely on the right, um, became uh, increasingly uh, uh, fraught, and, um, and, the, and politics was happening more and more, I would say, in the street. So there were demonstrations and counter-demonstrations and huge rallies in which the different uh, parties were mobilizing thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of their supporters to to uh, indicate their relative political strength and to get the ear of the president, President Sukarno. Um, and so there was this kind of heightened political mobilization that was taking place uh, in, in which, you know, the conflict, the tension was really close to the surface. Um, but I would emphasize that even with that tension and that conflict and the kind of hyper-mobilization of youth groups and and so on, uh, there was very little violence. There were a few instances, of course, but there was not widespread violence. Uh, And so this, um, one has to then say, well, okay, uh, yes, there was tension. Yes, there were conflicts. And these conflicts were not merely political. They had uh, sometimes cultural, sometimes religious, sometimes uh, economic dimensions, class dimensions, and, and so on, uh, fights over land, for example. But uh, one still has to explain how such conflicts, bitter though they may be and deep-rooted as they might be, 
how they turn into widespread violence. And here, I guess what I'm arguing in the book is that one has to, those conflicts undoubtedly are part of the story, but they don't explain the, the move to massive violence. The move to widespread violence really can only be accounted for, and it's at least an argument I try to present, uh, through the intervention of the army, which mobilizes, uh, quite deliberately mobilizes on the basis of those pre-existing conflicts and encourages uh, and provokes and facilitates violence on a wide scale. And one of the ways you you try and address this central claim of the book is by talking about the, the geographic and very personal way patterns in which the people who are killed are killed. So, so maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Who was killed and, and how were they killed? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, this is uh, an, uh, an interesting uh, thing, which I think one can only uh, start to think about when looking at the, ent- at the whole country. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of what we know about the Indonesian killings uh, has been based on regional or local studies. And, uh, and those have been extremely important in building up a picture. But what's fascinating is that when one puts them all together, certain patterns emerge, uh, which were not evident on the basis of looking at one place or another. Um, And so there's two kinds of patterns which are distinctive. First of all, the violence doesn't happen to nearly the same degree everywhere. There are some regions where there is terrible and intense violence. These are uh, places that may not be well known to people, except, for example, Bali was one of the centers of the worst violence. Um, Central and East Java um, also uh, were centers of violence. there were other others as well. By contrast, there are p- parts of Indonesia where there was relatively little killing, and so one has to ask: Well, wh- why? Why? What accounts for this geographical variation? Um, and uh, so, th- this is one of the things that I try to explain. But the other thing, which is quite notable, is that even though the uh, the killing is geographically dispersed and uneven. The methods of killing, the ways in which people are killing, was actually quite consistent. And so in virtually every place, what you find is that the killing is carried out uh, at least ostensibly by local paramilitaries or or vigilante or militia groups. Um, It looks as though this is local and spontaneous violence, but in fact, when one looks more closely one finds that those militias or vigilantes are always mobilized by, encouraged by, armed and and, and organized by the army. Um, another common pattern that one finds across the archipelago is the manner of killing. So uh, the, the practice of bodily mutilation. Mm. Bodies are, are chopped up, decapitated, uh, heads left on posts, um, really quite shocking things. Um, this happens across, despite you know cultural differences, uh, religious differences across the archipelago. These things are consistent. Um, so, uh, 
and, and also the use of sexual violence and uh, the common feature of sexual violence or, uh, and, and torture. So one has to ask, well, how does one explain, how do you explain the consistency in, uh, in the nature and the character of the violence, uh, but the at the same time as there's this geographical um, discontinuity? And, and my argument here is basically that the, the, the way, the only way that this can really, the best way to explain this is by observing uh, the role of the army uh, in, in uh, perpetrating and organizing these killings. Um, the, uh, so, so addressing the second question first, which is, you know, why the consistency? What I observe is and argue is that there is a certain kind that the army over time, really dating back uh, uh, to the 1940s when it was fighting for independence, um, uh, developed a kind of what I call a repertoire of violence um, or a culture of violence within an institutional culture within the army, such that these kinds of behaviors, certain kinds of uh, uh, styles of, of, of violence became uh, commonly practiced within this institution and shared with those militia groups with, uh, which, which served as their proxy. And so you, you didn't need to have an order issued or anything like that, but you had a kind of a common culture, institutional culture developing in which decapitation, uh, sexual violence, torture, bodily mutilation, and so on were the norm. Um, and uh, the second part of this argument about, well, why then is it so geographically dispersed? If it was the Central Army Command, why wasn't there violence everywhere? And here, what I find is that the, the geographical distribution uh, depends uh, to a, a considerable degree on uh, the, uh, the posture and the ca capacity of particular army commands. So, for example, the places where the um, the violence was uh, uh, got out of be, became very intense are places where uh, the army command, uh, the local army command, was very much in favor of and unified in its support for the campaign. This was certainly true in the case of Aceh, which Jess Melvin talks about. Uh, it was also uh, became true in Central Java, East Java, and Bali. Um, what's uh, by contrast, what you find is where there is um, there are delays in the killing, or there is no killing at all. It's where the local or regional army commanders are actually resistant to it. Um, uh, there is resistance in Bali, for for, for example, and the the killings are delayed. As long as there is resistance from the local commander, the, the killings don't happen. The killings are delayed for a full two months. And uh, after two months, that commander is removed and he's replaced by someone more um, uh, sympathetic to the Central Army Command's uh, position, and then the killing begins. So this belies the claim that this is a, a kind of a spontaneous expression of, of popular anger and underscores the point that I'm making, which is that the violence only begins when the local and regional mili military commanders are on board and encourage it to begin. 
So, so that's a really thoughtful, well-considered answer. Let me let me pull a couple strings of, of, out of those threads. You, sure. you talk about institutional culture and the nature of violence. So, yeah. And I know you address in the book cultural explanation or supposedly cultural explanations about violence, about the idea that Indonesians run amok and so on. Where where does this institutional culture come from? Why why would the army have an institutional culture that embraces and employs violence of that nature? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I mean, I, I you're right that I, I I have some skepticism about sort of uh, you know arguments that that simply are kind of cult- what I consider to be cultural reductionist arguments and say, oh, Indonesians, that you know, they're so violent by nature, one can never know. They just, this just happens. Well, and so you may ask, well, why are you making, what kind of argument is this that you're using a cultural argument to, dis- to, to explain the behavior of the army? But I do try in the book to locate that, the, the roots of that culture uh, historically. Um, and I think there are a couple of places one can, see this emerging. One is the experience of the army. Uh, the, the, the Indonesian army actually has its origins in the Japanese occupation of Indonesia during the Second World War. Um, I'm not sure you know, how widely known it is that Japan occupied virtually all of Southeast Asia uh, between 1940, late 1941 and 1945, uh, and, and occupied it in a, uh, in, it was occupied by the army and, and by the Navy. Um, and in its time there, it mobilized local uh, militia and, and other armed forces. Uh, it gave people military training in the hope that uh, in the course of the war, those local forces would help them fight against the allies. Um, and so this was, an ex- this was the formative moment for the Indonesian army. Mm. A lot of the people who later went on to become officers had their formative military training under essentially a fascist army. Japanese occupation army, and they learned from that army certain kinds of behaviors, um, and these included uh, the use of collective punishment, so burning down a village of recalcitrant or, or difficult villagers, um, the use of torture, particular techniques of torture, um, the uh, the brutal treatment of people who were incarcerated as prisoners of war. Um, and so a number of these things one sees emerging almost in their exact form, almost like direct replicas uh, in 1965 with the incarceration of prisoners, for example, massive incarceration of prisoners in what looked like Japanese POW camps, mm. uh, but also the use of certain kinds of torture. But it's not only the Japanese, of course, because what happens after the Japanese fall in, in August 1945 is that the Dutch, the colonizing power, uh, sought to return, to retake the, their colony. Uh, and there ensued a war of, uh, uh, an anti-colonial war, a war of independence, if you like, from 1949 to 40, 45 to 49, rather, in which Indonesian nationalists were fighting for their independence against the Dutch. And in the course of that, the Dutch, uh, for a variety of reasons, um, behaved appallingly. I mean, they, they, uh, some say it's because the Dutch had had experienced such humiliation Mm. during the Second World War. Some say it's because those Dutch soldiers themselves had been in Japanese POW camps and were, had been brutalized and, and felt that, uh, they were saving Indonesia from, uh, or, or that the people that they were fighting had been Japanese collaborators in some way, and they were taking it out on them. Um, 
But for whatever reasons, the, the, the Dutch forces engaged in similar kinds of misbehavior, uh, you know, acts of wanton violence, burning of villages, torture, uh, public executions, and so on, which for a long time have been were covered up in Dutch historiography. Um, but they are there. Um, and regrettably, you know, but, but one has to acknowledge this, on the Indonesian side, on the nationalist side, um, those um, kinds of techniques were imitated uh, and replicated so that Indonesian nationalists, even if one sympathized with their cause, one has to say that they, uh, this was another formative moment. These four years of fighting were a moment when the army learned to behave in very bad ways. So that what you had after this period of occupation and then war was an army with which already had developed a kind of institutional repertoire, a kind of culture, which um, which then uh, was compounded because over time, through the 1950s, the army grew uh, stronger and larger and, uh, and better resourced, largely because they were getting huge amounts of aid um, uh, in part from the United States, but actually a large amount of their assistance was coming from the Soviet Union. So they had more largesse. And by the late 1950s, when a lot of national in industries or foreign plantations and so on were nationalized, they were placed in the hands of the army. So now they had even more largesse and more economic uh, power and more um, of a stake in the, in the economic and political status quo. These things combined helped to create uh, an army with a particular kind of uh, political interest a, a more conservative political interest, but also with this repertoire and culture of violence that I I talk about in the book. And how actually, you know was, what? Yeah, there, so, sorry to interrupt. There's there's one other thing um, that I should mention in this, which is that there's one aspect of the army's kind of formation in these these years, which became very important in understanding the violence after '65. And that is um, the uh, the development of a doctrine called total people's defense, which essentially said, in order to fight our enemies, uh, we have to mobilize uh, in and among and with the population. It's basically a principle of guerrilla war. Um, but this became the official doctrine of the army. And it meant that um, in dealing with enemies, which were, for Indonesia, frankly, mostly internal enemies in the period from the 40s through the 60s, the chosen uh, method was always to mobilize local vigilantes or local militia forces. So there was a long tradition, already a 20-year tradition, of mobilizing these militias to carry out campaigns, counterinsurgency campaigns against perceived local enemies. Uh, and so by when 1965 happens, this is nothing new to mobilize militias against the communists. This is a tried and true practice with, uh, and, and so those militias don't have to learn that repertoire or learn that technique in, in an instant in 65. They've been doing that for at least 20 years. Hmm. So another thread to tug on from that original answer is, is another pattern. Because you mentioned mass incarceration, and, and you yes. argue in the book that, that there is something of an inverse relationship between the number of people incarcerated and the number of people killed. So, yeah. so maybe you can talk about that. And, and, and along with that, and I don't want to 
I don't want to spend too much time on the subtitle, but I'm, I, I am intrigued with periodization. Um, yeah. <laughs> the mass incarceration doesn't end in 1966. So, so what is the proper way to view this event or this period, given that people are imprisoned for a decade or even more after that? Yeah. Oh, it's a really good question. Um, and I, that's one of the reasons why, as I said earlier, I look at that title and I think, is that really the right title? Because <laughs> of course, uh, you know, I, one of the things that I think is very important in understanding this history is that it's not just about killing. Mm-hmm. It is about mass incarceration and it's about the relationship between those two things. Um, these are part of a single campaign, but What's fascinating to if one looks at the you know at the large picture, I said earlier that the killing is is dispersed and it's uneven. Uh, the same is true of the pattern of mass incarceration. And as as you suggested in your question, what I think we can see, although you know more research definitely would be warranted on this, is that where in the areas with the highest and most intense killing, uh, the pattern the 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 uh, long-term incarceration tends to be lower. Whereas in places where there is relatively little killing, you see higher rates of mass incarceration, a long-term mass incarceration. And uh, what I think is happening here, and I think there's some evidence to support this uh, presented in the book, is that uh, essentially, again, regional and and local army commanders are making decisions about their preferred approach to uh, dealing with the left, dealing with the PKI. In some cases, they choose to kill them. In other cases, they find it acceptable, more acceptable, maybe more effective to incarcerate them. And so if you have large levels of mass incarceration, that's because that commander has decided, you know what, we're not going to kill them, we're going to incarcerate them. And, and uh, there's some interesting sort of support for this. If one looks at the areas where there was lar- where were large, uh, intense killing, so East Java, Central Java, also North Sumatra and Aceh, um, there are um, uh, the documents that, such as we have, the, the testimonies, the accounts that uh, have uh, kind of made their way through um, to us, from that time indicate that quite often the commanders um, are saying, well, we, we, we simply don't have the resources, the food or the space to have tens or hundreds of thousands of people locked up in our jails. Mm. We, we don't, we can't do it. Uh, we don't have enough money. So uh, what happens is they would put them on trucks and send them out to a village and tell the local militia deal with these guys. So killing is a way to solve the problem of over-incarceration. And so, you know, and and so there is a a serious kind of logistical issue at stake um, uh, that is, or a logic, a a logistical logic um, that is kind of chilling, that that you you kill people in order not to have to pay for their, uh, for their, incarceration or because you simply don't have the resources and the central command has said, look, we don't care what you do, just get rid of them. Um, and so uh, that, again, as I say, you know, there are whole parts of the country where we really don't know still what happened. Uh, and it would be fascinating to see if somebody, you know, would pursue this and, 
and and see if it turns out to be true. But that is my sense of what's going on. Um, but oh, and then in answer to the second part of your question about uh, the periodization, um, well, you're absolutely right. I mean, they uh, there were people who were incarcerated. Some people were, um, uh, I, I should say, were detained uh, for maybe several months or a year and then released. Some were detained for a few months and then killed. Um, but if we talk about long-term incarceration, I'm really talking about people who are detained for several years without charge or trial. Uh, some of them, you know, more than a decade. Some of them for for 30 or more years. Um, and a number of those were sent to prisoner, basically to um, work camps um, that were, as I mentioned earlier, similar to Japanese POW camps in very remote islands. One uh, very well-known one called Buru Island, uh, where uh, about 10,000 people languished for oh, around 10 years. Um, uh, and and so, so, you know, why why does the subtitle refer to 1965-66? I suppose there, there are two reasons. One is that uh, among uh, you know, scholars of Indonesia and among Indonesians themselves, the, the sort of the tagline, the, 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 the years that matter, the years that identify what it is you're talking about are is really 65, 66. Um, these were the years when the thing was set in motion. And certainly it's when most of the killings occurred. Um, the, in, the long-term incarceration, I suppose, you know, one could, the, the second reason is that one could think of the incarceration as, um, as kind of the aftermath or the legacy of that initial um, campaign. Um, that this is this this is the consequence of that campaign of violence that had reached its effective conclusion by the middle of 1966. The army had taken over. They had succeeded in uh, uh, overthrowing Sukarno, destroying the left, uh, 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 destroying the PKI, and. After 66, it was a simply a question of consolidation and, and uh, maintaining uh, and developing uh, uh, army and, and uh, more cons- the, the power of the army and the power of more conservative elements. So it's not, um, you know, it's not a, a completely adequate answer, <laughs> I realize. But um, that, and I, and I do wonder about it myself, but I, I think, you know, it, if put into a corner, that that is yeah. the best that I can come up with. Sure. That that really the the pivotal years were sixty five, sixty six, um, and certainly one could say that the the legacies of sixty five, sixty six are with Indonesia today, uh, fifty plus years later. So yeah, and so. I'm going to ask you about that in just a minute. But first, you you made it wasn't a toss off comment, but it was a brief comment about supplies from from uh, uh, America. That's actually a big part of your book. So maybe you could talk yeah. just a little bit about the role of foreign countries. Um, yeah, I, I guess for simplicity, the U.S. and Britain, and maybe probably a brief comment about China, but but wherever you want to go, what, what, how do yeah. foreign countries respond to this? Yeah, well, I mean, there's two parts of this. I, th- I mean, I think it's uh, helpful to think of what foreign countries, how foreign foreign powers 
um, contributed to the situation and to the violence in the run-up to 65, and and then what happened after the coup, the alleged coup of October 1st, 65. So there's the before and after. And and just think very briefly, I mean, in the period before 65, we, you know, I, I think that the simplest way to put this is that most of the Western world, but primarily the United States and Great Britain, uh, were working, doing whatever they could to undermine Sukarno and get rid of him. There were assassination attempts. There were uh, they, this. There was a covert uh, operation, a very uh, well-funded one, to support military uh, rebels. With uh, in the late 1950s, so the CIA actually ran bombing runs on behalf mm. of these military rebels. Um, and pr provided guns and, and, and money and so on. Uh, there were repeated efforts, uh, psychological warfare efforts. There were there was uh, money that was given to anti-communist elements. There were secret meetings with people in the army, uh, the CIA and the, and the army. There were reassurances uh, given that they should, you know, if they decided to move against Sukarno, that then the U.S. and the U.K. would would be all right with it. So, broadly speaking, what you have is a situation situation in which Western powers um, are, uh, are extremely concerned about this, the growing strength of the left in Indonesia, especially the PKI, and they are doing their level best to, uh, to prevent that. And one of the strategies that they, uh, that they settle on is to try to create a situation uh, to kind of, uh, through Cywar and all these other methods, to create a situation in which it will appear appropriate for the army to seize power. And one of the ways that they do this, they talk about in the documents, um, is to say, well, maybe if, if we can provoke the PKI into doing something crazy like you know, a premature coup, uh, which, it, which fails, then the army will have a pretext to go against them. And of course, that's exactly what happened. Now, I don't know, uh, you know, if if uh, if that's because I'm not going to. I don't argue that that's because that it happened that way because the CIA planned it. I think actually, you know, it's unlikely that the CIA was clever enough to pull this all off. Um, but it's certainly true that the CIA and MI6, um, the British intelligence agency, were doing everything they could to encourage the army and to provoke a situation in which there would be a showdown that the army would win. Because the army had the guns and the, and the PKI didn't. So that's before 65. Um, uh, there is also, of course, the, you know, evidence. There's, there's the, 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 the simple fact that the, the United States and, uh, was supporting the Indonesian army, that even as relations with, with Sukarno were souring, I mean, it was a, they were getting reaching a very, very low point. Sukarno was very anti-American and very anti-imperialist. He was very critical of the U.S. position in Vietnam, uh, which was happening simultaneously with these uh, developments. Uh, all as that was going on, the one thing that was consistently being done was the United States was maintaining its good relations with the army. They said, you know, you know, Sukarno hates us. You know, our relations are really just at rock bottom. But the one thing we have to do is to keep our relations with the army leadership. That is our only hope. And so that and so in particularly they were keeping 
uh, uh, close ties with the anti-communist uh, element. So even as tensions with um, with Indone- between Indonesia and, China, uh, and the United States were continued to accelerate, the U.S. continued to um, to maintain and forge deeper ties with the army. What what happens after the uh, supposed coup attempt and the initiation of the mass violence? Well, here uh, the evidence is even stronger of U.S. and British complicity, and I, I use that word, you know, quite mm-hmm. deliberately. Um, it the evidence shows pretty uh, clearly, I would say unequivocally, that in the weeks and months following the coup, the alleged coup. Uh, the U.S. and the British and others as well actively encouraged and facilitated the violence, and they did that in a couple of ways. They um, they began within a, within four or five days. They had established a covert campaign of disinformation and propaganda um, that was designed explicitly to, in their words, blacken the name of the PKI. So they were deliberately spreading uh, stories about how the PKI was responsible for the killing of the generals and, and inciting people uh, to uh, so repeating the stories that blackened the name of the PKI and Sukarno. Um, and this was disinformation that was being spread not only through Indonesia, but more importantly in the region and around the world. So they're creating a kind of a, a, a world awareness or justification for the action against the PKI. The other thing that they did was they were providing covertly um, all kinds of assistance, economic assistance, logistical assistance in the form of uh, two-way radios, communications, and so on, and also military assistance um, to the army leadership. And they did those things covertly because they knew that it would look bad for the army, uh, which was still very nationalistic in its orientation to uh, appear to be the handmaiden of the Americans or the British. So there was, a, uh, they, they, they knew very well that they had to do those things covertly. But they continued to do them even as they got the, their own reporting, the, the, the cables back from Jakarta and Surabaya made abundantly clear that they knew that tens of thousands of people were being killed. In fact, I would even say that they were, uh, showed an increasing willingness to disperse this aid as the killing advanced. In other words, they, the army was being rewarded for its determination and its conviction to crush communism with additional aid. Um, and the third thing they did, which I think is you know, maybe somewhat overlooked in, in the, the way we study these things, was that they adopted a policy of deliberate silence. So they, they knew that there was widespread army-instigated killing and violence against civilians. Uh, but they adopted a position of silence. And this was later reflected on in Department of State and CIA documents saying, yeah, it was a very good policy to remain silent, Uh, particularly in in light of the fact that so many people were being killed that turned out to be a really good thing. Of course, when you're silent in the face of of widespread killing, you are complicit in it. And so um, these kinds of gestures um, really provided vital assurances to Suharto, and that is the general in charge, and all those who were working with him, that they could move against the PKI with, without any kind of political or other repercussions. And, and so I would argue uh, really buttressed and encouraged and facilitated the army's campaign against the left at a really vital juncture. Hmm. Um, there's also been some talk 
in some strands of the literature about the involvement of China. Is there, is there anything to that? Is what, what can you say about China briefly? Interestingly, the story about, well, I would just begin by saying that the evidence that China and Mao were somehow uh, responsible for the, the killing of the generals or um, uh, uh, had conspired with the PKI to try to overthrow the government or whatever, the, the evidence is simply not there. Uh, the reason we talk about this is, um, is in part because this was a story that was put about by the army in October of 1965, and which was repeated uh, quite commonly by the United States and the UK in their disinformation campaign. Um, it was a way, it was, it was listed as one of the ways to blacken the name of the PKI uh, and to strengthen the campaign against it, um, because at the time there was this uh, idea that a uh, very sort of patriotic and, and nationalist idea that we didn't want communist China meddling in our affairs. So what better way to blacken the name of the PKI than make them appear to be the handmaiden or the proxies of, of China. Um, but as I say, the evidence to support it is really very, uh, uh, it is basically non-existent. Um, and interestingly, even the internal documents, the U.S. internal documents, acknowledge that there's no evidence that the, at the time that China was the mastermind between, behind the PKI. Uh, but they continue to put, put out this disinformation anyway because it has a good effect, uh, a, the desired effect of blackening the name of the PKI. Hmm. Well, we've taken a lot of your time, so, so we're coming to the end of, of the interview. So, so maybe just a quick question. Um, about how the period is remembered in, in Indonesia. And maybe I'll start by just saying, if, if my students have heard anything about this that they didn't get from me, it's because they watched one or both of the Joshua Oppenheimer documentaries, yeah. um, The Act yeah. of Killing, or, or the other one whose name is slipping my mind. Um, the look of, look of Silence. Yes, thank you. So, so how are those received in Indonesia? Ah, well, that's very interesting. They... Um, they both films have been quite well received by people of a, uh, a, a critical uh, mindset, by mm. younger people, by people who are uh, engaged with and, and interested in political history. Uh, younger kind of activist groups have have uh, really been, uh, on the one hand, quite amazed that to, to see these things um, and and inspired by them. Um, at the same time, they have not been, needless to say, they've not been welcomed by um, Indonesian officials, um, where the reaction to and the, uh, the, the feelings about 1965 are still uh, re really have not changed substantially in 50 years. Uh, among military veterans, among people in positions of authority, among certain kinds of youth, well, anti-communist groups, uh, and so on, there is a deep hostility, and I mean very deep hostility, to any attempt to uh, reconsider or uh, revisit these events, mm. you know, or or to cast them in um, to to view them in uh, in a light other than the one that has been presented officially for more than fifty years, and so 
you have going on now in Indonesia a re- the, the possibility of a real contest over over history, mm. um, and uh, with you know as I say officialdom and, and military figures and, and some anti-communist uh, organizations uh, resisting every conceivable sign of a reconsideration of this history, but. Uh, kind of inevitably, because of the internet, because of films like Oppenheimer's, because um, uh, just simply because um, there more and more is is, is becoming known, uh, there's a kind of a bubbling up from below of um, not just uh, academics doing this. I would say the academics, in a way, are the least important part of the story. Uh, but it's uh, people who are talking to their grandmother. It's teachers in school who just can't uh, stand teaching what they know to be a false history to their students. Um, it's uh, people who uh, are wondering, well, you know, whatever happened to granddad? Um, it's people who, uh, one of whom I quote in the book, who, who reached the, who finally got their kids uh, through, school, through school and they're married off and they can finally, they finally pause and think, well, you know, now that I've taken care of all of that, now it's safe for me. Now it's the time for me to tell people what really happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is, this is, uh, it, it's, 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 it is coming up from below. People are writing um, ordinary people are writing memoirs of, of their own particular experience. They may be only published in a hundred copies and, and distributed, uh, in a, in a book cart on the side of the street in a small town in central Java, but it's happening. And so this contest over history, I try to describe a little bit in the book. Um, but you know, I don't want to sound overly optimistic because the truth is that there is still a deep, reluctance uh, on the part, not just of officialdom, but in society at large, there are also people who, either because they or their families are complicit, or because they belong to organizations that were complicit, or because, frankly, they just believed all that they've learned over three generations, find it very, very uncomfortable to, to revisit this stuff. Um, and so it is, it's not uh, by any means, um, a done deal. Uh, in that context, the films by Oppenheimer have, you know, have been really important. Um, but I'm also encouraged by the fact that Indonesians themselves have begun to make films, have begun to sing songs, uh, and to produce, uh, you know, various kinds of, um, uh, kind of new, new kinds of, uh, using various technologies, revisiting these issues. And, um, so, you know, there are poetry slams and online people who are taking uh, propaganda films from the past, the official propaganda films about these events and remixing them to give them a new a new and more subversive meaning. There are all kinds of things happening in this in this genre. And uh, and one of the, my favorite ones, in fact, is the is the rediscovery of some of the songs of the left. Um, so there was a, a song, a particular song that was very popular, um, it actually dates back to the Japanese occupation, but it, it's a, it's a, just a, a, a very moving song about a woman who's poor and who goes out to try to gather weeds and various things to sell them in the marketplace to feed her family. It's a very haunting song and it became popular 
uh, among farm among people on the left, and it became affiliated. It became associated with the PKI. And after 1965, it was banned, and people who sang it were accused of being communists. And and so now, at, in the last few years, uh, as, as a kind of a way to rediscover and to and to reclaim that past, people now are singing that song again. And if you go onto YouTube you'll, and you type it in, you'll find all kinds of not just reposting of the old songs, but uh, remixes of it and covers of it. You know, there are rap versions, there are electronica versions, there is everything. And so that is it, it's a it's a kind of <laughs> of course, the anti-communists are horrified because they see this as a resurgence of communism. But it's it's actually much more subtle than that. It's people simply wanting to reclaim their own history. Well, we focused on your book, but you also edited a special issue of the Journal of Genocide Research. And I, I thought maybe I'd give you just a minute or two to talk about that and, and what you tried to do with that issue. Yeah, that, that journal actually emerged out of a conference that was held in Amsterdam, which was a joint venture between UCLA and, and some institutions in the Netherlands. Uh, and, and the subject was 1965 today, living with the Indonesian massacres. The idea was to say, well, now we're 50 years on. What What is this like? How does how do uh, the events of 1965 resonate and feel uh, to us today? And, and really, there were uh, there were three central themes that we tried to uh, that both the, or, the 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 conference and and the special issue were organized around. And one was this idea of competing narratives that I've just been talking about. That 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 there's the official narrative, and then there are all these other ones bubbling up. Um, the second one was the notion of uh, the kind of the legacies of the violence and how they live on even as people are competing, you know, are telling different stories. The, there are these institutional legacies they, uh, that, that uh, institutions themselves, educational institutions, judicial institutions, political institutions, uh, were shaped in a, in a way. Um, there was a kind of a, a reformation of the state, if you like, which, which lasts until today and which is slowly, uh, but not very fully being clawed back and reconstructed. Even 20 years after uh, Suharto fell and Indonesia became you know, more democratic, these institutional legacies have been very sticky and they've, they've, last, they've, they've, they've you know, lasted uh, even into you know, 20 years after the, the, the switch to democracy or the reform period. And then the the third main theme of that of that special issue is this whole question of transitional justice. Uh, w w what kinds of initiatives have been undertaken to try to uh, remedy, seek remedies for for these events? And and here, I guess, I mean, you know, the the news is, um, you know, both. Uh, in, in some ways encouraging in the sense that there are these efforts to memorialize very, very uh, grassroots efforts to, 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 to mem remember through these memoirs that I'm talking about, through film and, and poetry and, and so on and music. But at the same time, the idea that uh, the, the, the possibility of any kind of judicial process of any Kind of judicial accountability through a either a, a truth commission or a tribunal. Uh, these seem as remote as they ever have. So you have, you know, very, in some ways, very 
very positive signs, but in other ways, um, a recognition that the state, the Indonesian government, is is uh, farther away than most uh, governments uh, would be in this. In, in to, sorry, let me rephrase that: that the that the Indonesian authorities are uh, not remotely interested in uh, pursuing any legal remedy. And this is quite remarkable when you think about it. Um, you know, you think of other cases of genocide, Cambodia, Rwanda, the Holocaust, and so on. Um, you know, in many of these cases, certainly the situation doesn't become perfect afterwards, but, but some kind of justice is eventually um, pursued. Uh, Indonesia is now more than 50 years, and and the prospects for any kind of rendering of justice are just quite remote. And I, I think they argue the reason for that and um, is is fairly obvious. And, and I at least I argue it in in the book. Going back to the mm-hmm. book is that, um, you know, the people who are responsible for these crimes remained in power. And so when those responsible for the crime of genocide, if that was what it was, remain in power, the prospects for, for, for any kind of judicial reckoning are pretty remote. And they're even more remote when the most powerful countries in the world were complicit in that violence. So, and this is what distinguishes Indonesia, I think, from a lot of other cases where the perpetrators were drummed out of power and where it was their opponents who then took the initiative to seek justice. Well, it's a wonderful book, and it's a much it's it's a much richer book than we've had a chance to to talk about here. And so, for the listeners, I highly encourage you to go out and look at it, and read it, buy it. It's a thirty year project for Jeff. You got to get some reward for it. But, um, <laughs> but so so to kind of conclude, I always conclude with the same questions. And 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 Jeff, we're taping this the weekend or the Friday before Memorial Day, and so I have a long weekend available to me where it's supposed to be 96 degrees and so I'll want to spend it inside reading or watching what should what should I read this weekend what what did you find meaningful to you in the process of this project that other people should read you know um, I'll tell you there are I mean if I'm allowed to say you know expand the meaning of sure. read um, yeah. but 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 to start with I would I would listen to that song that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that song is, you know, two minutes long. Go onto YouTube. It's called Genjer Genjer, which is, you know, you'll, um, uh, G-E-N-J-E-R and then repeat it. And, and the person to listen to is a wonderful woman named Lilis Suriani. Uh, there are various versions, but that's one of the original ones from the early 1960s. And, uh, I, I have to say that, you know, sometimes when I was writing this book and I was thinking, oh, what am I doing this for? You know, this is crazy. Too many footnotes. Um, I would just click on Genjer Genjer and I would. I would have my answer. Hmm. It's a, it's a lovely song. Uh, and quite meaningful. So uh, and it takes you back. So, yeah, and the other thing that I would say is, you know, you referred to the Oppenheimer films. I would actually, you know, I particularly like the second film, mm-hmm. The Look of Silence, because I, I find it more sensitive and um, really calmly 
exploring the what it meant for a family uh, to have experienced these things, uh, and and an exploration by a member of that family, uh, not only to think about what what it meant to them, but to ask in the in the gentlest but strongest way of the people who were responsible for the violence what they thought they were doing and how they feel about it. It's a very, in some ways, shocking film, of course, but it's also very gentle and, and I think quite, quite moving. Um, and the third thing that I would do, and this is finally coming around to reading, is um, it, there's a, a, a wonderful uh, memoir by one of Indonesia's uh, most famous writers, also controversial because he was a leftist, uh, who spent 10 years in on the prison island of Buru. Uh, and his name is Pramudia Nantatur. And he has written many, many novels over the years. He's dead now. He wrote novels and short stories. Um, but his memoir of his time in prison um, is really, really something. And luckily, it's translated into English. It's, so it's Pramudia Nantatur, uh, a mute's soliloquy. Um, yeah, I, I, I would strongly recommend that, all of those three. Well, that may take me more than a weekend, but I will put them all on my list. <laughs> so thank you so much. You've spent 30 years on this. What's your next project? Uh, you know, I have two. Um, I swore that I, I told my daughter uh, when I sent the book off, I said, no more books. And she said, oh, dangerous. Yeah. yeah. And she said, yeah, until the next one. And as it happened, uh -huh. about a week later, I had a new idea. So uh, then the next thing that I'm working on is actually a book of photographs. And it's oh. a book of photographs, but with a kind of his very light historical commentary uh, beside clusters of photographs. And it's about these same events, sadly. But in the course of writing this book, I just kept on thinking, wow, that one of the reasons, perhaps one of the reasons we don't know about this and people are not conscious of it is that there's no visual record of it. Um, and, you know, we have visual records of the Holocaust and the Cambodian and the Rwanda genocides, but who can evoke a visual memory of this in Indonesia that's absent in, in the, certainly in the wider world. So I'm working with a, with a colleague in Singapore and we're putting together a book of photographs and images, graffiti uh, and, and other things uh, from be, the lead up to and during and then after. It's not going to be a gruesome, gro you know, grotesque thing, um, but it will capture the sort of you know, sense of, of, of political crisis and, and give you a feeling for what was going on. So that's one thing. The other thing is um, a, uh, uh, a little project which I'm calling the Swedish Connection, uh, which which stems from the fact that I, I stumbled into the Swedish archives a couple of summers ago and found there the records of an, a remarkable Swedish man who was the ambassador at the time these events took place, a man named Harald Edelstam. And Edelstam, it turns out, had um, was... Uh, had had assisted um, Jews and resistance fighters from Norway to es to escape uh, to Sweden during the Second World War, and then in 
the 70s, he had assisted trade unionists and Cubans and leftists who were being rounded up um, in the coup against, uh, after the, the coup against Allende. So, and he happened to be in Indonesia at this time, and he wrote some, he traveled around through Indonesia at the height of the killing and wrote some extraordinary dispatches. Um, and so he, his perspective on this is really pretty remarkable. So I'm going to write about him. Um, and then the final pr project I have, which is probably a really bad idea, is, um, uh, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm working together with my wife on a book uh, which is trying to understand uh, and place in some kind of comparative historical perspective the problem of, of mass killing in the United States. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, as I say, it's probably a bad idea, but um, it, it, it seems to me that um, this problem is one which definitely could benefit from some comparative uh, historical perspective. And so that's what yeah. I'm hoping to do. Well, those are all wonderful it. projects. Sounds like probably won't be 30 years, but it sounds like you've got the next five or six or seven years of your life planned out. Um, yeah. But I hope when you're done, you'll come back on the show and, and, and talk about them with me and with the audience. Be delighted to do that. Thank you so much for your time. And, and I wish you a great rest of the semester and a wonderful summer. Thanks. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. You've been listening to an interview with Jeffrey Robinson about his new book, The Killing Season, A History of the Indonesian Massacres, 1965-1966, published by Princeton University Press. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or Stitcher or other podcast providers or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network podcast. I hope you'll join me next time when we'll continue our short series of podcasts about Indonesia. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.